Hi, everyone. Welcome to Totally Plan, the podcast where we have no idea where, what we're going to say next. Uh, we brought uh, Nelly Codices, one of our great friends here. Yeah, I, I used the English version of his name <laughs> just so he can appear more like international. Yes. <laughs> So it's a good friend from the Portuguese games industry. Uh, Nelio has all the checklists, like things that a game dev should do. Uh, he's a teacher, he oh. started a company, he, you program things, organize events. Do you miss anything in the list? I'm also a PhD student. I guess that also counts in video games. A teacher and father now. <laughs> you're just, yes. you're, Nelio is collecting all the badges in life. Uh, gracefully uh, accepted our invitation for this completely prepared episode. And I'm also here with Diogo Vasconcelos, my, my amazing co-host. Yeah. Diogo, say hi to people. Hi, that's me. Hello. Thank See, <laughs> the introduction of Elio was way better, but uh, Diogo, she said it in a downward tone. Yeah, yes, and also we are with Diogo. And I also have here Diogo, Diogo <sighs> and that was it. Yeah, he's always here, guys. You need to get used to him. But yeah, so today in our podcast, we wanted to, as always, bring a little bit of what opportunities are around the game industry. And uh, this month, a lot happened um, around us. And one of the things was the Games for Good Game Jam. And so we decided, okay, so far we talked about international events, what it means to go after things like incubator spaces all of these opportunities and everyone always says by the end like, okay what can you say as an advice for young kids like oh go to game jams and participate in them and so today we're just going to bring someone that not only has participated but also organized some and go a little bit about what it means into for ourselves as developers but then also for the people that we teach and that we want to prepare in life yeah I would like to add that when someone is aging, like ourselves, all three of us, when you refer to the people starting in the games industry or studying as young kids, uh, that's very revealing. You are revealing your age, Mufalda, and mine and Nelly as well. So yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I forgot we were trying to keep that stealth. <laughs> People still think I'm super young that I still go no, to school. And no. I'm like, yes, I go to school, but not in that <laughs> Yeah, that's that way. the stereotype that it's just young kids that want to make games. Yeah. <laughs> Let's keep well, it going. Well, and, and also that our student, because you are a student right now. So if you would like to like, just give us a little bit of who you are, where you come from, what are you doing? Diogo, as soon as Nelly starts talking, everyone's going are going to know that he's like 40 years old in in the game Mafala, industry. You're being well, rude. You rude. He's, he's 28, Mafalda. He's just 28. <laughs> Not in the industry, but my age, yes. You're very close to it. Uh, so first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, by the way, picking on the, uh, what you mentioned about my name, so you, how did you spell it? Was Nelio Codices, something like that? <laughs> Sorry, you know that I was many times the... when I'm dealing with international people, especially by writing, for some reason, usually they assume my name is Nilio. <laughs> and then once we, ha we start having verbal conversations, they treat me as Nilio. And I don't have the guts to tell them, I'm sorry, it's Nelio. So I just remain Nilio for the duration of the entire project. <laughs> uh, I've grown used to it. So now it's like an internal joke. When they start calling me Nilio, I'm just fine. It's my alter ego. Uh, but Codices, I don't think I ever heard it before. <laughs> Thanks for that. The suffering of having a Portuguese name... I know it too well as well. I've been a lot of things, none of them Diogo. <laughs> it's the Diogo part is a problem. I've, I've, All the emails are like Diego. And Iago, and, uh, which I didn't even knew it was a name. Uh, some variants. It's not like a, a nickname. It's my actual name. One of my old bosses, uh, he actually thought I used that as a nickname. So when he realized that Codis was actually my name, he was surprised. And we've known each other for years before he realized that. So yeah, so about myself, I'm going to try to be short. So I've always wanted to work on video games. So when I went to the university, I took a computer science degree because this was way before there were game development courses here in Portugal. So I had a programmer vein, I would say, but I didn't know that to, how to code. So university, 
computer science, a completely generic course, but trying to make the best of it so I could land a job in game development. But I always assume I, I would probably had to go abroad because in Portugal, nothing was happening as far as I could tell. Uh, I didn't have access to the internet. So this is like 1998 when I joined the university. So my first online searches on old Alta Vista was, uh, are there any game studios in Portugal? And I was super depressed because I couldn't find anything. Uh, but eventually near the end of the degree, I realized I was on a summer vacation actually, and I bought a magazine. And there was a, an article about a Portuguese game studio. And I was like, oh my God, there's a Portuguese game studio. I was reading the article and then they said where they were located and they were located on my university campus. So I was there for four years and there was a game studio working there and I never knew about it until I reached the fourth year of the course. Long story short, I ended up working for them. So it was Wide Dreams a long time ago. And so my first job was actually working in the games industry because that was really my focus. A lot of, as you can imagine, a lot of people went to a generic computer science degree because they wanted to work in games, but then they realized that it's such a volatile industry uh, and they realized they just prefer to be, let's call them like generic programmers working, having a stable job, uh, but I was the crazy one and I really wanted to work in video games. So I worked there then on Game Invest, uh, another Portuguese company, then I founded my own Battleship in 2008. I think we are the oldest company in operation, game development studio in Portugal, but I've never confirmed this. It's people that tell me this, but I'll assume it's probably correct. I don't know. There are individuals who have been working in games longer than that, but in terms of companies, maybe we are the oldest ones. And I started to teach also game development related courses in 2015, I believe. No, actually I started before 2008, but university classes was in 2015. And I started my PhD February, 2020, one month before, you know what? The event. Yes, the event. I had a month of classes and then uh, I was obviously at home. I have to say it actually helped me a bit that there was COVID back then because I were juggling so many things, PhD, teaching my own company, and then having to simply stay at home in my computer and being able to just alt tab. Now I'm a teacher, now I'm a student, now I'm working with a client. And so that it made my life easier. Problem was you could die at every moment, but uh, small price to pay um, for some. Yeah, a small, <laughs> price, a small to price to pay. <laughs> I've been juggling a lot of different things and I believe it's the oldest design university in Portugal, not fully sure, but I think they are the original design school here in Portugal. I, they are more than 50 years old. They have a, a games de game development course focused on programming. I actually also think it's the first game development course in Portugal that was just focused on one of the departments. So programming in this case. Because when the courses started to appear here in Portugal, they were always very broad. You would learn game design, programming, 2D art, everything. And then he had, had the decision to let's just do programming. And it's been working fairly well. Problem is we always have very few students every year. Uh, that's a price to pay. So when you have a company, a university, which has a, such a broad course teaching everything, you have loads of students. If you just focus on one specific skill, you're going to have less students. So it's normal. What do you think about the teaching of, of game dev overall? Because it is a truth that most courses try to be as inclusive as possible and maybe have like these eclectic type of teaching. There are a few, there is like, okay, maybe it's not even a game dev course, right? It's just engineering with a, a class. Uh, or it just dips your toes into games, uh, or uh, things like uh, the, there is the, the collaboration between Nico and Belazarch, which is okay, like these students that don't technically have classes in specific game uh, courses or classes or whatever, but then they come together into things like game gems. Oh, that's such a complex question. So teaching game development and game development schools in general, it's very tricky. It, it's probably been like this with every industry. 
I would say. So when something new appears, it's always a bit chaotic. Specific to game development, it's a combination of factors. So for instance, how do I, did I get to Yad? So they started the game's degree in 2014, I believe. And when you're proposing a new degree, you have to design a whole course, define all the different subjects, what you're going to, what you're going to be teaching, the technologies, all of that. And you have to do that with the in-house personnel that you have. So people who are teaching other different courses, you need to ask for everyone's contribution. So how can we now create a game development course? They do ask for opinions from outsiders. They can pay for external people to help them build the course. So they have to rely a lot on the internal know-how and it's limited because obviously they are teaching different subjects. And so whenever a new course appears, it's again, it's probably like this everywhere uh, because you're relying on the internal people and just the goodwill of some friends or people that you invite over to tell you about game development and you try then to build a course around that, they're going to be mistakes. So the curricular plan, it's too optimistic or it's too difficult, or it's a combination of crazy things that really don't match. You really need to have a trial year to then understand the problems that the course had when it was designed. And I know it was problematic in the first year, which I think it was 2014. And so when you, you design designing the course, when you design the course, you have to also, when you submit it to be approved, you have to already know, or at least have a proposal of what teachers will be teaching on the course. It can't just be like a blank list of teachers. So you have to start putting names who's going to teach all those classes. So you end up again, having to rely on your internal, uh, the team you already have, the employees of, of that university, the teachers that work there. Yeah, but and the so, process is a lot like just building a game as well, right? because that's exactly yes, what we do in our own companies. Because there's a lot of similarity. Think, yes. Yeah, people just think we get we do whatever game we want to make, but but then yeah. there's that level of like, it depends on the team that we have and that we have available and yeah. time budget, all of those things. And we're waiting for an answer until the last moment, so you don't know if the course is going to be approved. When it's finally approved, then okay, now we have to open the course, and now we have to find new teachers, probably assign the current ones we have, because it's very hard to then hire someone in just a month notice or even sometimes less. And so the first iteration of any course, it's super hard and teach. I think everyone in the staff is doing the best they can, but imagine you are a teacher doing, I don't know, teaching computer networks or programming, whatever. And then you are told, Hey, you know what? You are opening now the game development course and you have now to teach computer networks, but for game developers, future game developers. And as in game development, everything, it's slightly different. You have to worry about security performance, all those things. So games are a different kind of beast when we're talking about development. And so in the end, who pays the biggest price? It's the students because they enroll in a course, they have their dreams. They want to learn how to work in game development. And you have all teachers are still a bit lost. They are themselves researching, learning the technology, learning how, what's the best way to teach this. When I taught the first time in many places, I would spend like the previous month just going crazy and trying to learn everything I was trying to teach afterwards, because you want like to be perfect and make no mistakes. And I, I don't want anyone to find out that I just learned this like last night to teach tomorrow. Sometimes that happens. I can relate to that too, <laughs> about just like thinking, because there's, a, we talked a little bit about this, which is even though we do this every day, we don't teach it every day. And that's a, just a different way of thinking. There's a lot of things that you just do it. <laughs> you don't think about the process. The biggest issue I have personally is that a lot of the times it was learned by trial and error. So sometimes I may know an answer or a solution to something, but not necessarily why it's there. Then it forces me to learn and go search, do other people do this as well? And if so, why? And then I'm able to, mm. basically I need to teach myself what I already know intuitively so I can teach them to others. At least I think the process that you're describing now, Nelly, is so important for students to learn and understand. Because when you know that this is the process that goes into developing 
a course, a plan, and what did that mean? Then you are a little bit more empowered as a student. Remember now as a student, people are saying, oh, to check who the teachers are and like always go through that and ask like other students and all that. But like, sometimes you don't understand why you should do that yeah, because everything is still a lot experimental unless, I don't know, maybe like medicine is not like that. But even like there's always new things coming up and new kind of adaptations that need to be made in the curriculum. And game dev is just like that extra layer of complexity. And when doing a curriculum, then you have like logistics. Uh, so for instance, if you're going to hire a teacher to teach at the university, he probably won't be able to just teach a specific unit. So he has to have a number of hours he needs to teach there. Uh, you always have to try to first occupy your teaching staff fully before hiring external people. Uh, and then after the course is already approved and going on, you're going to find a lot of problems. The thing is, you can when a, a course is approved, it's approved for a duration. So if it has the maximum rating, I think it's approved for five or six years, I can't recall now, which everyone jumps in excitement when a course is approved. Hey, we got maximum grade six years approved. But I'm kind of ambivalent about that because in one hand, yes, it means for the next six years, you can open and have students coming in, enrolling. On the other hand, for the next six years, you can't really change the course that much because what was approved was that curriculum. And then as you are finding out problems, hey, this unit doesn't make sense. Hey, the technology here shouldn't be used, whatever. Things you are learning, way too few hours for this or way too many hours for that. You start making a list of the problems you found. And then you have to pick only just two or three because you are allowed to make changes from one year to the next, but they are super measured. Like you can, I don't know now on the top of my head, but it's like, you can kill a unit and bring a new unit uh, to be taught. It's, it's very, very tricky. And it, it's something that students, you know, I'm online, I check Discord sometimes and I see a lot of students sometimes complaining about the different courses. So I understand and I relate. They don't know many times that on the other side, teachers many times are agreeing with what they're saying, but they're just very, the hands are a bit tied. We are proposing things to change, but for instance, I can give you an example. I'm going to propose something to Yad actually this week that I've been trying to implement for the past two years. Even if it's approved now, maybe it's not even able to start on the next semester. So maybe only two years from now. For me, it's a very obvious change. Now it's obvious, but back then it wasn't. But I want to switch around two of the semesters and it really takes a long time. And there, the reason for this, again, is legislation. Uh, Ministry of Education, okay, they define these rules that things cannot change abruptly. I think the idea is to protect students because they have enrolled in something and then the next semester is completely different. And to be fair, Nelly, like it's not only that, is, uh, it's just the way the market worked before. I think now it's completely changing, we can all agree, but because people were more like higher based on, for example, oh, you've been to this course and that's, there was a structure in place. And what happened is if what I've been taught is completely different from why my colleagues like five years ago were taught, then it's like our degrees are not valued the same towards an employer, for example, or something like that. Again, nowadays, it's a lot more about a portfolio, networking, like all of those things. But if you still have a culture, uh, because we still have a little bit of that in, in, in companies that that value that stick strict structures that say whoever learn here it's going to be as good or it's going to have the same education as others and so i think that's a little bit of where that aversion to change is coming from and also a little bit of that oh when i studied there it wasn't that cool but that will always happen because there's all there's a rapidly evolving technology and tools in game development and many other areas as well so yes it, it changed that was going to be my next yeah, point change is yeah. inev inevitable change is part of the process and change is a good thing in my opinion. And, and we talk with a lot of uh, companies who also come to us. So we keep asking the industry. So what should we change also in the courses? What do you think makes more sense? What are you looking for in an employee? And again, even though they give us the feedback, it's not something we can implement like the next day, not even maybe in the same year. And then there's the other side of all of this, which is the students themselves. A few years ago with the natural, 
a game development student, whoever went to that kind of degree, had a nerdy background. So people who were very tech savvy, so they would be able to extrapolate and open a piece of software and just explore by themselves. And they would pretty much become productive very fast. And nowadays we are seeing a big change due to the new ecosystem of applications that we have nowadays. The UI of everything nowadays is super minimal. And we realize a lot of students come to the university to learn these things and we expect them to just be curious by themselves and start, I don't know, pressing all the menus on Unity or on Unreal and whatever and explore by themselves. And many times you get their, their reply saying, the teacher didn't taught me how to do a very specific thing. And we're like, okay, but we, the idea of having a university degree is not teaching the tools. It's teaching like, how do you solve problems, concepts, because a different tool probably has a completely different UI. So, I mean, even Unity from one version to the next could change everything. So they should be feel more comfortable exploring software. And nowadays you get many times surprised that we are telling students to do something that for us is very trivial. Imagine changing the extension of a file and they're like, or understanding uh, the, the concept of the file trees, but that's the reason for that is also because we are old. Uh, we had to use MS-DOS and Windows 95 and in 98, the 2000 and millennium edition, we didn't have the luxury of the amazing UI. But that, that poses a big problem for us teaching nowadays. Also, it might, it might mean that a different approach of onboarding those tools might be a requirement in the future. It goes beyond the tools for making games. Well, I would say that Excel spreadsheets would be also yes. for making games. And it's often that nobody knows how to make a formula even. And that's the basic function of a spreadsheet. So, yeah. It's very complicated nowadays because education has been uh, moving forward. And there's this now philosophy of being more about let students be more creative. We're trying to not have that type of class where you have a teacher with just slides and explaining things on a, a very monochordic tone. So there's a new paradigm in teaching in where you want everything to be as practical as possible. So nowadays you have direction from uh, universities telling you, hey, make sure everything is as practical as possible, have students interacting with one another with different courses. So try to make it even fun for them. Uh, so it's not so theoretical. But then when you try to do that, then you realize, okay, but for them to be really practical, they need to feel comfortable with technology, with computers in general. I don't know if, how to solve this. Actually, it's, it's an ongoing conversation between teachers is, we shouldn't be teaching the very basics to students like teaching. So you go to the start menu and this is how you do. Otherwise we wouldn't have time to teach. Well, what we're supposed to teach. On the other hand, they are every time now reaching the university, sometimes without ever having used a computer, because nowadays they're just on their phones or because uh, they, they have all the apps they need, video editing on the phone. So nowadays you can do so many things on, on mobile platforms. And then when you have an actual PC with a, an operating system to work on this industry, you have to be so technical. How do we solve that? It's essentially that we live in a world of closed systems, right? Um, and there is not a focus on earlier academic uh, development for learning uh, tools like Microsoft Office or alternatives to that. And it should be like in the same way that we nowadays learn earlier English before we didn't. I didn't have English until much later. Uh, and my brother started uh, having English in primary schools. That's a big transition, right? But I learned English uh, through Cartoon Network without any subtitles. Right? Uh, so I would say my process was much better. Uh, anyway, uh, what I mean is, of course, that there is a certain level of expectation from teachers and the game course or any course to have some basics and learned, but we have been fine. That's not the case. So the issue is along the way. And I do agree that it doesn't make sense for the onboarding to happen as you start the course. 
because some of them are really basic things that that's, everyone should know, not only game developers. It's a complex issue, right? It's a complex issue. Since we are more and more in, in this technical universe, we try to teach the tools. And I think before, maybe we were a little bit more about teaching concepts. Or it was easier to think like that because there were less tools right to teach and now there are so many tools so if you think about it is like for example i'm thinking about my education in fine arts like, okay if you just had pen and paper <laughs> you just teach the same design and the same art and the same you know like all of the basics of drawing um, with pen and paper and now it's like you need to also teach all of those basics but then put it on like photoshop and then you like illustrate it if you're in this and all of that and but but there is a way to just teach concepts before and and I think for what I'm seeing like the way that again uh, is a generational thing is just we are having tools in a different way and so maybe we as like teachers for example like throughout education are just assuming on the outside uh, for example students are learning curiosity outside of school and in school we're just teaching the tools and schools should be used also to teach the curiosity. Because, for example, when you guys were talking about folders and all of that, I was just like, I cringe because oh, I know because I do goals. It's very like hard on me to learn some like some concepts, like technical concepts. But I, I didn't have that like nerdy background as as much, and so I am very like not tech savvy. But I understand concepts like what it means to go through a library and find the book that you want. Like what's those trees or organization? And I can bring that to how we do things on computers. And that came from my dad never gave me an answer growing up. It was always like, you want to know what that word is? Just go to the dictionary. And I was like, but I really don't want to go there. But, well, you'll never know what that word means. And there, there, there wasn't another option. And so I cried and I tried and there was like, no way. And then I was like, okay. I went to the dictionary and I learned, or I went to encyclopedia or whatever, and I learned who the person I wanted to know about was. And that's just not reality nowadays. We just don't have those barriers uh, to learning that then makes you need to be curious or need to, to go search in, in different alternative ways and figure out that, which is not like a negative thing in itself. It's a negative thing when uh, together with these preconceived ideas that you, you, the students are still the same and they still have those barriers and they still will by themselves go search things. It comes from a paradox of information as well, right? So the more information we have available, the more comfortable we, we are that the information, we know it's there. So therefore, when I'll need it, I'll search for it instead of, oh, I'm curious now, so I'll look into it now. That's at least how my mind works. Whenever I have a question, like, oh, why is that place called that? And then I go into a deep rabbit hole, goes into Latin words and the meaning of things, etc. And suddenly I'm now going into invasions and wars and stuff. And, and it just goes on. I, I know not everyone is like that. And I don't expect everyone to be like that. But the curiosity levels I feel and I have are clearly different from many people that I encounter. So what are some common misconceptions that students have about game developments and how do you usually address them? Another tricky question. A typical one is, uh, well, you've heard this many times before, that making games and playing games is very similar. Uh, so in game development courses, everywhere I've taught, the drop rate is super high. So it's normal from one year to the next, losing like half your students. Nowadays, we're trying to reduce that, but it's very common. And I would say the majority of that happens because of that misconception. So they really love games. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they assume that it's a matter of making like conceptual decisions and they're like professional software where you just check some boxes or whatever and things happen. There are some game engines like that, but when you go to a university course, you don't usually use them. You go to the more hardcore tools. So that that's, I would say it's number one, when they realize that making games, it's nothing alike playing games. You just get to see some text and some interfaces, some menus, and that's a big turnoff for those who are looking for some, some excitement. There are quite a lot of misconceptions, like not realizing that math is a requirement. They also tend to make math 
but harder than it actually is. There's that, I don't know, that uh, trauma sometimes they have from high school. I don't know. Myself, when I was learning math, even at the university level, it's once you start applying it that then you really see how important it is. And it's really the way of doing things. Otherwise, everything is hard-coded and hammered. And it's going to be impossible to make a game around that. So they sometimes don't really realize that some basic concepts that, that they should have learned before would eventually be super important for them later on. Another one is, so how hard it is to make a game, uh, how important it is to first plan before starting to actually making the game. I had ju just a discussion two nights ago. So I published the grades for one of my units, not in Yad, but I published the grades and some students came to me on Discord saying they were unhappy with the grade. And the first delivery was about just game design document. So it was, I always have three milestones on my units. It's a specification milestone where they just specify what they want to do on a game design document. Then there's a playable prototype, second milestone. And the third milestone is a vertical slice. They never make a full game. It's just a slice. And I always make sure they first document what they want to do. Just broad lines, but they should first think. And the grades were bad. I mean, they all had positive grades, but we're low, like between 12 and 14 out of 20. And there was a group that came to me and was like, I don't understand why my grade was so low. I really think I've specified the entirety of the game. I think the game design document is actually good. And I was trying to explain to them, this at best is like a good high level concept. So they have a game in which it's a 3D game, third person, it's an action game, combat. And the gimmick, the special gimmick of the game is you have a rope that you can use to make a lasso attack. So you can attack enemies like grabbing them and throwing them against other enemies. And their description of that mechanic was pretty much, you have a rope and you throw it to grab enemies and kill other enemies. It was like just three lines. And I was, I spent two hours trying to explain to them on Discord why that isn't really enough. And because you need to explain things like, what do you mean by rope? Because I know what a rope is, but in terms of in terms of uh, game concepts, do you mean it's a line? Does it have curves? How do you represent it? Is like is it a polygon? How do you detect if you hit something? What happens if I throw the lasso and I hit an enemy, and then someone crosses where the lasso already is placed? What if I push the enemy? And there's a wall in the way. So I was like bombarding them with questions, like when you. For me, a good uh, game design document is. Well, answering questions. So when you say something like the character jumps, I will look at you and ask, so how high do you jump? What key do you have to press? Is there a cooldown? Is there a stamina system? Can you jump at will? Can you jump and change directions while in midair? Can you jump while falling? I don't know how many questions I can make just about jumping. And so you really have to think ahead of all those questions because once you sit down to start making the game, or someone has to sit down making the game, they'll also have those questions. If they don't have the answers, they'll make assumptions. Or they'll be just very annoyed and send the GDD back to you saying, hey, I need my answers. And then a cool exercise I would love to make, but I've never made it, would be like in the first two weeks of classes, like having everyone write a game design document and then giving it to another student and they would make that game and then comparing the result to what they have imagined. And maybe that confrontation, they'll then realize, oh, okay, I really didn't, wasn't that explicit with what I wanted. And that's the thing. So they kept telling me, but those are things you're gonna be deciding once you start making the game. And I was like, no, because if you're deciding as you are going, then you have to rewrite everything. Then you realize you didn't really think about some part of the structure. What, if you don't even know, like, I don't know, the size of your characters, then you're asking your artists to make something and then it's not high resolution enough or too po high poly or whatever. So first sit down, have a discussion, and really think about your game, make sketches on paper, take screenshots of other games, change those screenshots and adapt them to your own vision. And for me, a GDD doesn't have to be walls of text. The more visual you are, the best. So just use other games as references, Show me measurements, show me collision boxes. Yeah, basically show you where you want to go. It's just, it's a lot of, show the bl blueprint. 
Yeah, show me stickman figures. That's enough to understand the mechanics. These forces them to work collaboratively and think about working collaboratively. So far, we what we seeing we as teachers and as people that build the programs, we are seeing that we cannot change those enough, and so we we need to create opportunities for students to explore different things that are outside of that scope. Uh, we understand that students coming from different schools might have like different learning backgrounds and different experiences. We see that they, even like inside the same course in the same class, they still need to have that collaboration and understand what each other are doing and how to communicate to their colleagues about what they want to do. We, we talked about the, the importance of planning. And also throughout this, I think one special thing is what you said about what it means to make video games like how hard it is and then who are they for right? because it's not like playing video games you're making something for someone and, and all of this like segue <laughs> to games for good because i think like particularly this game jam is something that encompasses all of these points that we went through first being held by a school and understand it that it's like okay we need to build something to give our students something more for them to grow, to learn, to make their portfolios and to show their, their abilities. It, it is open for people outside of YAD, not only students, but game devs from other areas. They can come in, join and work with the student and just be at a game jam. And, and also the special element is that you always have an entity. I will call it that because it can be many things coming in to, to give a little bit of a brief. And so they all always like this brief to follow and this direction to go with their game. So yeah, if we want to just introduce a little bit better and then we can go around like how, how that is impacting all of the problems that we've seen so far. So Games for Good is a, it's a game jam that we have at the ad. It's a, we call it a social responsibility game jam. And it started in 2017. We only stopped for a couple of years. Again, you know why. We we really wanted to keep it a live event and not online. Uh, and so we've had five editions so far. And the event has changed somewhat through through times. Uh, but it started with uh, Monel Sequeira and Michaela Fonseca. They were the like the they were teachers at the games development course at Yad. The gem had a lot of different uh, objectives. One of those also get the course being known in Portugal because Yad was kind of late to the party of game development courses and we wanted to also make the course known. We were already hosting a few events there, Game Dev Talks. I'm not sure if we had a global game jam there before Games for Good. I'm not entirely sure. And so the idea was, okay, let's try to do something a bit different, social responsibility. We invite, back then, the first edition we invited, I think, five institutions so it always have to, has to do with social issues. Could be poverty, could be health issues. So institutions that are doing some kind of social work and trying to help the homeless, help with medical bills, so anything goes. We invite a few institutions to come in to present their briefing, which is pretty much a saying, well, how do they operate? So what do they do on a daily basis? What's the problem that they're trying to address and how do they do it internally? To use that to serve as inspiration for them, the participants to look into that and then make a, basically awareness games about that issue. And it really worked very well. In the first edition, we had more than 100 participants. We have a partnership with AMPRI, which is the Programming Teachers Association in Portugal. And so they held a challenge th throughout the year where high school students are also making um, social awareness games and then throughout the country, the whole country, and then the best, I don't know how many, maybe 50 students, then they come to yeah, to the finals in Games for Good. And we have the pro line, which is open to everyone. So they just go to the website, they register, and they are free to come and participate as a normal game jam. The reason why I don't really like the names is because, well, a high school student doesn't really like to be called junior. You are a teenager, you want to be called something else, maybe pro, I guess. And pros don't also like to be called pros because they many times are game dev students, they are amateurs, or even if they are already professionals, you never feel in game development that you are pro enough to be called a pro. So it's really something we need to change one of these days. Uh, and so we usually have 50 juniors plus 50 pros 
participating all together. It's a full weekend. We start on a Friday, we end uh, on, a, on the next Sunday. They have the briefing. They are completely free to make their teams to decide how to approach the subject. I have to tell you the first year we made this, I was very frightened because so how will students, university students and even high schoolers, how will they approach this subject? Because you're talking about sickness, you're talking about po poverty and all of that. And I mean, you cannot just make like a, a first person shooter killing all the homeless. So I was kind of frightened. What crazy things will, will they make? But in the end, all in super good taste. And, and it went so well that we decided to have this as an ongoing. Nowadays, it's a bit different. The first edition, we actually gave prizes. So the best five or three teams, I can't recall. We had a lot of sponsorships, so we would, I actually think Nerd Monkeys also gave some prizes in some of those editions. Yeah. So keys for games or keys for tools. They get also physical prizes like gaming keyboards, that kind of thing. So we have a lot of, we had a lot of sponsors that would participate that way. But two years ago, we were having an internal discussion. We were like, I don't know, this is for social awareness. Why are we giving prizes? People should just participate on their own goodwill and just share their view of the subject. So we dropped the prizes. If it wasn't last year, it was this year. I can't recall. Uh, but we still have first and second and third place. So we do like a final competition. Diog was one of our guests, the, uh, one of our juries last, was it last weekend? Uh, yeah, so. it was because it was when I heard my, my, my hands. I remember it's firmly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's imprinted on your mind exactly. and your wrist. And so we still make it some sort of a competition because you want the entities to be there to see the results. And then we just have people voting what they thought was the games that better matched what the entity uh, and, and sorry solve. to interrupt your process but because the entities give a brief so they being involved and there's like a jury or uh, that element of matching that brief to the games i think what we you're talking before about they sometimes they don't understand what makes like a good game or what, whatever that means because it's very subjective and in this scenario for example like a good game is just like the game that matches that client brief in a way Yeah, we, we try to make it as open as possible. And it's so far, I'm always surprised. So sometimes I'm hearing the briefing from an entity. I'm like, how can they make a game around this subject? And I'm always surprised. They always find a way of addressing it. Sometimes it's not directly. So it turns into like a philosophical question and they just approach it in that way. And it works really well. And more recently, we started having less institutions being invited. So at the beginning, we had five different institutions, but sometimes that would create the awkward moment in which, because we give complete freedom to the participants to choose what game to make. And there was a year in which one of the institutions, no one made a game about their work. So that was super awkward. It was a bit sad even, uh, but it was just random. No one knew what the others were doing. So when they, everyone realized that there was an entity without any games, it was just very strange. So we made a decision, okay, let's maybe change this and have let's have just a single institution being invited per edition and try to make the entire event about that subject. And I think it's, I think it's working better and that way. It makes sense, right? It's iterating all of those elements of organizing the, the game jam. And what do you think are the most important elements for a successful game jam? So this year, for the first time, we had a Discord server for the event and it worked really well because it facilitated communication. You need an icebreaker. So I created a server and there was a channel just for team building. That was the name. So team building for people who had no team yet built to just present themselves, advertise their skills and try to help them uh, join a group. But there were many different channels for different things. For instance, if you needed some kind of technical support throughout the event, there was a channel. You just had to ping all the volunteers. They would get notified immediately. They would just go there because the event is kind of large. It takes several rooms in the ad. And sometimes people would have to go like looking for a volunteer. Sometimes you can't even identify them very well. So centralizing all of that on Discord was worked quite well. You could have also the, for instance, now that the event finished and I sent a message to everyone just asking, hey, send me your feedback. So what did you like about the event? What didn't you like? So I opened the channel just for that. 
And now, instead of having to create a Google form and preparing everything to send by email, then most people will not answer it. By being on a tool like Discord, people just actually told them, hey, if you prefer to just send me a private message, maybe you didn't like a certain volunteer or whatever. If you are free to just talk to me, if you prefer. So I would say logistics are super important because participants need to feel when they reach the camp, the site where the event is going to be held, that everything was thought and is prepared for them. The living conditions have to be good, temperature-wise, access to food, feeling safe, uh, because they bring their belongings, and they bring laptops, they bring equipment. So you have to make sure you have a room where they can sleep, where they can uh, chill also, if they are a bit tired of working. Uh, so all of that takes a long time. Need to find sponsors to... I didn't say it, but in Games for Good, we actually give away food for everyone. So all participants have a lunch and dinner at the event. And this year it was McDonald's sponsoring because they were also an institution. It's such a, a large company, but a lot of people also don't know what do they do in terms of social responsibility. So that was also an eye-opener for everyone. And they were also a sponsor this year. So I would say logistics, communicating. I'm saying this, but I know we've made some things wrong, even on this edition. I'm trying to fix. Some people said, okay, yeah, Discord was cool. There was a team building channel, but sometimes people are still shy. So there are some suggestions saying, hey, try to have some moment like a physical activity where you get everyone in the same room and they have to speak. So even though there's the there's Discord, they said, hey, try to still make people communicate more and so that's, that's a relevant point. Did that cause any issues or conflicts between teams or have you seen that happen? Uh... There was, I only found out like the second day, there was like two or three people still looking for a group and everyone assumed everyone had a team at the very beginning. And then you start realizing a few people are drifting between groups and not sure. And, and because you have such a short time frame, the sooner you start being productive, the better. Uh, another thing is trying to convey to everyone. I don't know why, but in Games for Good, we have a lot of first timers in game jams. I don't know why it happens, but a lot of people that go there, it's the first game jam. Uh, but it's very important to convey to them that it's a safe space. Hey, you can make whatever game you want. You're here to have fun. You're here to talk to others. One thing that Mafaldo was saying before, I think it's very important. When you go to this type of event and other students, and you see how do they approach game development, how do they approach the tools, how do they... Sometimes it just takes someone saying, hey, I've never used that, but I'm going to learn it now in a moment. When you see this kind of spirit from someone, and then you try to imitate that in your own life, it has amazing results. And if it's a teacher telling them, hey, you need to be more, uh, you need to be more self-reliant, you need to explore more on your own, they take it like, yeah, I have a lot of things to do already. But then when they see one of their peers really f feeling super uh, enthusiastic and then just opening tools, opening Blender, doing something, and you're just side by side seeing what they're doing, you're like, okay, maybe I should try that one day and explore. I think it's a very good feeling for those participating. Would you say that there's something different about Games for Good because you also organize or participate in other game jams, like global game jam that we were talking before. You've been to like global game jams and it's like maybe like veterans, but like in this game for good, it's only, it, there's a lot of first timers. Uh, what do you think that's different about games for good? I don't know, hard to answer. One thing happened this year, which is kind of annoying. I'm going to share it with you, which is we were like a week away from the event, hosted on Yad, and we had zero students from Yad register to the event. Never happened. Usually we have a lot of in-house students registered. And this year it was like, what's happening? When Eddie Lair, our course coordinator, told me, hey, we have zero, zero students. I was like, okay. And so we actually had to convince them to participate. <laughs> Volunteering um, them. And they're tired. Yes. <laughs> In the end, we had a lot of participants, so I can't complain. But it was strange that they didn't feel like it on their own, that they needed like teachers to tell them, hey, game jams are important because in just a matter of days, you're going to have a new game to add to your portfolio. And really for your future is super important. Also the networking you're going to be doing in that event. In game development in particular, a lot happens 
through the connections you build going to these events, very random encounters, even for me professionally, a lot of things have happened because of a conversation I had, I know, years ago, and then someone pings me on LinkedIn. Hey, I need a project, whatever. I re just remembered about you. So anything can happen. And if you're just doing your daily life and not changing anything, you're always meeting the same people, just going to your courses, to your classes. So nothing changes. And here in Portugal, we do have a lot of, or we try to have a lot of events. Now we get Game Dev Lisbon and before the Game Dev meets and all of that. And every time someone goes, they end up realizing, yeah, this was important. My presence there really opened my horizon. Uh, doesn't mean that the first time you go, you end up having a deal or whatever. It's just, you get to meet other people. That shouldn't be the motivation. The yeah. motivation should be. I think yeah. that's definitely the aftermath and not like the first thing. And now we'd like to just to put my story out there for others. You both already hear it before, but since we, we have students that see this and also just like people looking for opportunities or looking to build opportunities. One of the reasons that I wanted to invite you today, Nelio, is because I think the thought put behind Games for Good, what it means to build a game jam like this, uh, definitely is nothing that goes unnoticed. Because I think that's a little bit of the reason, because it's it looks like less scary to go to something that is, you already know the goal. You already know that, okay, the goal is to do this thing for good or is to do this thing for a charity somehow. And I think that takes a little bit of the weight of, okay, we're going to this uh, global game jam. So it's all the game devs around the world doing game dev things. So it's going to, <laughs> it, there's, there's going to be games better than mine or go to, I don't know, a Ludon there, which like, so all the indies are, you know, like searching and seeing, and then you have, you, you even have, I don't know, big YouTubers playing through those games. And here there's like this, I think the element of social impact in new generations really brings them in. Because there's this element of like, oh, I can make a game and I can make something that like someone will care about. And for me, like it was very, I've been to game jams before, I've been to events before, but uh, games for good by one reason or the other uh, touched me differently. Uh, I really engaged to the organization that my team picked in 2019 and it was about gender issues. They support uh, women and girls. And I think that started the path for me to, to now, for example, work with women in game and go through all of that because I made a game that went through those things uh, before. And, and because like that passion shining through or whatever, then people started to invite me for things. I think it was after that, that it, they see me before, but then it was like when Isaac was like, oh, come to Ludoteca, join us and organize events with us. Yeah. And Ricard Correa asked me like, oh, let's can you come and show your game to this other event that I'm organizing or whatever? And your willingness to then pursue games and that networking and the thing that you brought from that. Um, and I went, it was the first game jam that I went alone. I <laughs> never done that before. It was the first game jam where I didn't know anyone. I built my team there in the moment. Just, I remember, I think it was George made like this little group, like saying it was like a round thing where people just like pointing, what do you do? What do you do? <laughs> And we'll just put the arms up. Like, I guess I can join you. And, and I got in, and some of the people that, that work in that game, I got in touch uh, throughout. It's not like they were, and we even worked a little bit on, on it because we wanted to be better for the showcase. But, but just like the part of being connected to people that were completely outside of your not comfort zone and your, and, and it just changed it completely the way that you're making games versus making games with your already your colleagues in college and you already know how they're thinking about it and, and all of that. Uh, if nothing else, guys, today, I think that's like a good lesson to just get out there and join yeah. something and also that, that you can learn with. That feedback, <laughs> that experience gives you some positive feedback, even if it's, even if you interpret some of the steps being uh, failures, which I don't really agree with, but if they are not an easy process you are learning through that and that's a that gives positive feedback as, as well as meeting the people etc so you were talking about explaining um, and Mafalda as well from our perspective the the contribution that the game jams can have for them as individuals and as potentially future professionals and end on their career uh, how does that contribute for the industry as a well? whole game jams in general very tricky questions today so when you go to a game jam, many times professionals mingling with amateurs and students, 
and, and how companies are nowadays always struggling to, for, for finding new people. And uh, going to a game jam, so a studio going there, participating or being a sponsor or anything, it's also a good way of seeing students who may not yet have all the capabilities you may be looking for, all the skills that you need on your company, but they have the right mindset, which is they are keen on participating on things. They're not afraid of the challenge and they are quick learners. So if you see that happening on a game jam, you probably should keep an eye on those participants who show those skills. Because a lot of game development is not just the technical skills, but then the soft skills also are super, super important. So I would say probably that also you, you were just saying that there could be something on the experience that may be uh, hard or difficult, but you all, always have to think it will be done in three days. So even if you do a crappy game, even if you struggle with your team or whatever, next Sunday uh, you are having dinner and it's all in the past uh, and you're going to have a new game in your portfolio. One thing that always maybe frightens participants is, well, when you're doing games for good, you actually have to present your project, play it uh, for the audience. And many people are sometimes afraid of that moment. But I've never seen in my life a game being booed by an audience. So there's really, there's no way you're going to have a bad experience presenting whatever work you've done. Everyone knows how hard it is to make a game. If yours is incomplete, it was probably due to very familiar reasons. You weren't, you didn't have enough time. Your team was too small. The logistics didn't work that well for you. A number of reasons that also happen in game development in the industry that may contribute to a less stellar project. But in the end, everyone is super happy with what you've done. And more importantly is that you learn with the process. So if there were issues, mistakes, whatever, you're probably not going to repeat them in the future. So that's part of the learning process. What you just said, Nelly, goes, I think, so to what I think it's the best thing of a game jam, which is in a very short amount of time, you go through the entire process. It's just like you either have a released game by the end or everything crashes and burns. And all of that is just part of the normal game developer process. That, But normally that might happen with, within a month, with some months. And in here, it's just, oh, you've done it all in just three days or less. Yeah, you just lose a weekend. You don't lose your business. Plus the public speaking. So even the aftermath of like publishing and then having to talk about your game outside. And, and I think that's this element when you talk about failure, for example. I felt very hard in one game jam that I made which like none of, we, we had zero programmers, but we like, oh yeah, we're just going to use Unreal blueprints and that now, <laughs> and we were just like three of us and, and we were figuring out stuff. But one thing that we did is by the end, we just did a little presentation on what was our thought process, what do we wanted to do with the theme and, <laughs> and that, well, the little gift of the broken game. And they was like, thank you. And everyone just applauded and they laughed and they were like, great girls. Like you did it. Uh, it was just like a full girl team that we, and, and they were like scared that, oh, but there's like no programmer here. It's like, don't worry about it. We're going to do great. <laughs> like this. And now to this day, Isaac still makes fun of me that I have a game. I need Chayo that is not a game. It's just a PDF. But it's like, but it's a game that I'm, it's the PDF describing the game that I would have made. <laughs> if that would go well. Vaporware. Could, could be a vaporware game jam. Everyone just does concepts. There's no game at yes, the end. We should. <laughs> the idea guy game jam. Yes. That element uh, for sure is extremely useful on a game jam. For example, in public speaking, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. That's that's my experience, at least. And I think it's also Mafalda's experience and your experience uh, as well, Nelly. Because it doesn't mean that you don't get nervous before uh, public speaking. I, that still yes. happens. And it, hap it doesn't matter if you're doing it for 10 years or doing it for, for the yes. first time. That still happens. What gets me the most is it's the waiting. Yeah, it, it, I just want exactly. to get started. And once it starts, it's fine. But Yeah, it's the waiting that really, really kills. Um, but uh, you get into a process, the more times you, you do it uh, just adding to the to to my question in my perspective whenever i'm looking into hiring for enter level or internships on a portfolio easily you interpret the interests and objectives and even 
a learning process through the several game jams that you participated in and then include those games on a portfolio. More and more, I see less and less participation in game jams on entry-level submissions or immediately coming out of school, university, etc. I see one, two, three at most lately. And whenever I see suddenly... 10 participations, what's happening here? And then I go through all of them and see how it starts exploring different arts, different narratives, different mechanics. You, It's impossible not to see. And that's one of the things that I would say it, it contributes for the industry. For example, in the hiring process, businesses will be looking for entry level because they will have to hire new talents. There's... There's a limited amount of senior or experienced people in the market. So, and there's more and more studios and more and more job opportunities, but less uh, seniors because we will, we all eventually will die. In the hiring process, in my opinion, game jams end up being a process of teaching all of those phases that Mafalda was talking about, speaking, networking, as you were saying, Nelly, and in, in the process of building their portfolio and getting them ready for a career. Yeah. Because that's the thing, you really should work on your portfolio. And if you start making your own projects at home, every game developer, I, I guess, has started it and it, they're always never ending projects. So, so go into game jams and then you'll have several prototypes and you never know when one of the projects you make on a game jam may lead to something greater. Like it happened with George Castanheira, I think also some of his games. Uh, Striker's Edge also, yeah. Striker's yeah. Edge, exactly. Exactly. And that's just games in the Portuguese game industry. We're not even talking about games uh, outside mm -hmm. and, and worldwide. And they're successful, very successful yeah. indie games that were started on a game jam. I'm not, that's, that yeah. shouldn't be your objective. I think the reason that happens is because you are also in a mixture of pressure of making a game in a short amount of time and not having the pressure of being concerned if it really is a good product and sometimes you're just doing it for fun and because of that the game is fun sometimes yeah <laughs> i just want to put a note in wrapping up these advices of what you're learning in game jams which is also we're talking in the sense of for students and the sense of like to build portfolio but i would say like even for people in the industry already or already working and for example if you're working i don't know in vr and you want to do a transition into other things or even if you, you want to go to AAA, it's hard to get that first space i know that our friend on twitch like he now works for, for ubisoft uh he, he, for massive and he has this massive portfolio <laughs> of uh, games from game jams i don't know i don't even know how many are in that portfolio but you just scroll down and like yeah. it's 20 games there i don't know more another good example um, is isaac also mm -hmm. yeah yeah and they are just like game jams masters and that definitely helped them. And that's not necessarily advice for everyone around the world because in the US there's like ways of if you go to certain school, then you have certain internships and like big companies and then, okay, you're set to be there. But if you are in a place like here where you don't necessarily have those openings in those types of industries, then it's very hard to relocate a junior, right? To whatever those big studios have. So you can build not only portfolio by just working in other companies, but then, for example, if you're just working for a mobile company, how can you show that you have other skills? Well, you just need to do the, your mm -hmm. own projects and you need to make them. They need to exist. Yeah. They cannot just be in your wallet of the never-ending project and so game jam is a way to take them out of that not wallet i would want to say uh, wardrobe no that's the word drawer. search it <laughs> drawer. but yeah and that's my final thoughts all right nelly do you have final thoughts i was listening out to mafald and thinking that many times companies now do internal game jams also to experiment and find new concepts give the opportunity of people who are, I don't know, a designer to do something different or vice versa, QA testers also to show their skills. And sometimes that's how you have the break to end up working on something different within those companies. So yeah, so game jams are really a way to potentiate your future. Participating on a game jam is really saying, I would say, that you're not afraid of a challenge. And a lot of the spirit behind developing games is that there, there are never easy games unless you're doing 
a SQL in the exact same technology and without higher requirements. That never happens pretty much when you always have higher requirements. So one thing I would say, this is a bit philosophical, but the one thing I would say that I learned in university was at the end of those five years was, if I had to sum it up in one sentence, would be not being afraid of a challenge. And I learned this with a very good friend of mine during the degree, which was every time we had an assignment and we were like, this is due next week and we have no idea how to do it, is he would always say something like, yeah, today you don't know, but tomorrow you'll know a bit more. The day after you'll know even more. And by the third day, you have something working. And then you have two more days to polish it and we'll be fine. And his words were always super reassuring. And if nowadays you don't get that feeling at the university currently, because as the degrees have been shortened to just three years and you're always doing so many different things. So going to a game jam probably will contribute to this kind of spirit. Like you feel it in person that, yeah, just in three days from now, there ha there has to be a game. If there isn't, there's no problem. You can always deliver a PowerPoint presentation, but ideally you're going to have a game. And so by going to these events, I think your spirit kind of changes and you'll be just a more motivated person with your own work. And that's super important. And And I'll share my final thoughts, which is my experience with Game Jams. Uh, where I mostly uh, on delivering a playable game, but in the end, not being happy with the end result. And to be honest, all of those situations really weren't the most important experience for me personally, because what I remember is being with the people. What I remember is the brainstorming, the, the discussion of figuring out what we're going to try to do, working collaboratively, talking, getting to know new people, that experience for me was very impactful and helped me throughout my career, I would say, because some of them were new experiences for me. Some of them were transposed from other experiences that I brought from different past experiences, not related to video games. I, I have fond memories of terrible games, very fond memories of very, very shitty games. And that's... that. Uh, that it, it, it means something. It means that in the end, it doesn't really matter if you feel like it failed. It will suck a little bit on the, on, yeah, but it will be okay. Now our listeners know where our next merch is going to be as t-shirts saying, I have fond memories of shitty games. <laughs> uh, stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah, probably. Who knows? I would buy a mug with that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we are a little bit past our time because everything was very, very totally planned. But uh, in the end, it was a very interesting conversation. I guess edits will end up shortening this, but don't worry. I am sure it will be a little bit over an hour. Uh, and thank you, Nelly, for accepting our invitation to talk about um, game jams, uh, game industry, and academic side of things from your perspective as a teacher and as a student. And, and as a developer. And as a developer. And as a father. I don't know how that applies, but uh, but it also... Uh, <laughs> it, it also it's, applies. It's, also, it's, it's connected. <laughs> Everything is connected. Because life is a life game. Life is a game, exactly. <laughs> And, and thank you, Mufalda, for putting up with me. I know that I annoyed you a lot with Excel and spreadsheets, but it's important. It is. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Excel is life. Yeah, Excel is everything. Um, <laughs> and that's the clip we're going to use. <laughs> I share the sentiment. 90% of everything I do ends up, I start doing some kind of document. This will look better on Excel. And I close it exactly. up on Excel. Exactly. That's if I have cells, I'm exactly. happy. Exactly. This is the next podcast, the Excel so, journey. <laughs> everyone, yes. thank you. Uh, thank you for listening and see you next episode. It will be a really good one. Bye. Totally planned. Bye. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.